one of the things I didn't get to talk about on this on this podcast was how much the thing ends up talking like Popeye in in half the issues, which I kind of adore. <laughs> oh, there really is a part where he says where he actually says I am rather than, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's it's I there's a crossover that I want to see happen. So cold open. <laughs> Hello, Whatnots. Welcome to episode 10, I believe, of uh, Baxter Building. My name is Graham McMillan. With me, as ever, is my esteemed, bearded, and all-around wonderful guest uh, guest host, <laughs> co-host, even co-host. Yeah, I'll take that. Hi, it's Jeff Lister, everybody. Hello. He is going to be the sensible one as we continue our trek through uh, Jack Kirby and Stanley's Fantastic Four. We are at on this episode annual number six, which we should have done last episode, but neither of us realized it in time. And then issues 82 through 87. That's right. Uh, There are, as we were just saying before we started recording, there's only three stories, so we might be able to do this one relatively quickly, or we might not. Yeah. Place your bets now, everybody. I I, I sense I know what side you're going to favor, and I I do not blame you. Exactly. Let's just be realistic here. Yes. Hey, Graham... Hey, Jeff. Let's there be life, right? Yeah? <laughs> There's a smooth segue, everybody. Actually, officially the title of Fantastic Four King Size Special number six. Uh, let there be life, right? Uh, it, or, <laughs> officially, the fabulous FF fight a fight that can't be won. Spoilers, yes it can, because in the fight... The story is called Let There Be Ellipses Life! Exclamation point. A spectacular movie-length epic complete in this collector's item issue. Yeah. Well, and I will say this. It's, sorry, excuse my French, everyone, fucking 47 pages. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's an of, epic. It's, it's a behemoth, it's, yeah. It say, as it wonderfully on the splash page, featuring the glory of birth neath the shadow of death. <laughs> Stan, I I will spoilers everyone say that um for these six issues in this annual, mm-hmm. I kind of felt that, um, this is them peaking again. Oh yeah, so um, this, this issues in a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's a lot of fantastic stuff in here. Although we'll get to it. They're they're with an enormous asterisk on the uh, the four part Doctor Doom story. There's a there's a lot I want to unpack there. Oh, not yeah, least yeah. of which is yeah. It's yeah, but this is this definitely let there be life is kind of amazing because it is 47 pages. It is Kirby using being very generous with the full page spreads and an astonishing double page spread or two. And and it really pays off for me. I really am such a strong issue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It, And surprising because this falls in the middle of the issues we talked about last episode, yes. which were not. Mm-hmm. And you have this this great story, which has a new villain who is not generic villain number seven, which is what Kirby and Lee have been up to for a while, but in the, the monthly series. Yes. You know, Annihilus is introduced in this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annihilus has a great visual. Mm-hmm. And 
he has a, a, a recognizable personality. He's got a recognizable personality, and he has a shtick. Um, I, I have to say, uh, for people who don't know, uh, this issue in, uh, involves um, Sue, because of the cosmic radiation in her blood, um, is in danger of, perhaps, of losing the baby and perhaps even her own life. And so Reed hatches a mad plan that involves going in to get to get antimatter from the negative zone to be able to cure the imbalance in her blood. So it... and, and let's just say this straight off. Mm-hmm. Reed's plan doesn't actually make sense. No. It it's one it is very much a MacGuffin. Well because his plan is not really explained and then what he actually gets in the end, which does work, is something he didn't even know existed in the first place. Yes. One of the things that I think is fascinating is uh, people who have listened to the Baxter Building podcast before, episodes before this may remember us talking about uh, episode 51, or is it 52, of the FF where Reed ends up... 51 is this man's monster. Right, which is what they refer to here, and I think they're incorrect. Like, there's an editor's note where he talks about Old Forbish's annual and says, oh, remember back in FF51? And I think he is not right. Or else I'm not right in remembering that panel, so we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But in issue 52, Reed goes into the negative zone. He's sort of trapped there, and he ends up with... We, we talk about the beautiful Jungian imagery as a mysterious um, prisoner ends up on the opposite side of the asteroid that he, she, he's on. And it's literally, there's a lot of stuff going on with, with the idea of Reed's shadow self there. And honestly, to me, one of the things that it didn't catch me until the second time I reread this issue is once again, we have an, an incredibly Jungian interpretation of this story, which is that Reed, in order to save his wife and child and, you know, his kingdom, essentially has to return to the underworld to get the object that will cure the Fisher King. Um, and it's... I feel you're mixing your, your epics there, Jeff. Well, I, th- I mean... I in think order be- to save his wife and children, he yes. has to get the object to save the Fisher King. Yes, well, because I that's that's me being most, as people can tell, apart from the fact that I, I talk out my butt a lot, it's that a lot of my Jungian uh, knowledge comes via Joseph Campbell. So the idea is that, it's, that, that these are very universal... Archetypes, And so the narrative of the hero descending into the underworld, which is and confronting his own shadow self in order to bring back the thing that will heal, you know, fill in the blank, his father, the kingdom, the land. And in in the case of FF Annual, uh, his wife and child, um, it it doesn't make sense in the way that Stanley, bless his heart, is doing his best to try and dress things up. To make sense, but I feel that for Kirby's plotting, the the archetypality of the story ends yes. up making a lot of sense. Well, it, it's it's traditional Kirby plotting, wherein logic is not important, but That's the right. emotional truth of the story is important. Yeah, and, and, and so it really and, and it really works when you you see Annihilus. Annihilus appears on page twelve of the issue, and Annihilus does look like a demon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he actually pretty much looks like Kirby's demon in many ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually uh, a great comparison. And so you, you do have. I mean, it, it really sort of doubles down to the 
Reed going to the underworld element. Yeah. Because he goes to this other zone mm-hmm. where he has to confront a, a, a demon, devil. Yes. Uh, for to save the life of his loved ones. Well, and, and, uh, and interestingly enough, he confronts him and he defeats him by trickery. Yes. Which, which feels important in a way as well. Well, he defeats him by trickery. He actually honestly negotiates with him. I mean, he does, you know, well, let's, well, let's get he, to no, he, he doesn't. He doesn't because he, he says that he gives him the cosmic control rod back, which he does, but he's drained it of all the energy. Not, I thought it wasn't of all. I thought he just took enough of it. Like I, I perhaps we'll have to look at that when it gets there. But I, I thought I, I, I want to say that like it's 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 unclear enough. Yeah, that we can both be right. Right, right. No, I, I think I think for me the more Jungian concept is is that because the thing that I find fascinating as somebody who only has dealt with the later appearances of Annihilus, where he is essentially a heroin addicted cosmic cockroach, I guess. Um, <laughs> Is seeing him in in this issue, as you point out, he's a demon, but very specifically in this issue, he is a scientist. He he is sort of like Psycho Man, who was also a scientist. The creatures, a lot of the creatures that we've encountered in the negative zone are monstrous, but I think that it is telling that Annihilus is kind of the Reed Richards of the negative zone in that he captures these guys, he puts them in a lab and he basically puts them there to experiment on them. Now he's not a good guy in the sense like well, exactly. all his, his, stuff his is. experimentations is literally why don't you and him fight? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally, totally. I, yeah. I put all these different creatures in the same environment mm-hmm. now fight. Yeah. But it is really interesting to me, and I think I th- we'll get to it. There's there's that beautiful panel where on page the full page spread of seventeen, where you know we start off with Reed Richards looking through his little microscope doodah on page one, and on page seventeen we have a nihilist looking at the FF behind glass and through his own gadget, you know, and so it's it everything about it is different so the mirror imagery i don't feel is very explicit but when you look at it you're kind of like to me it's like oh yeah reed is dealing is literally making a deal with like you said with a demon but it is also a demon that is it is him in that sense yes. the demon is an Ilus who is uh, as it explains on page 4 the living death that walks you may remember that last episode uh, around the same time Tumazuma mm-hmm. was also the living death that walks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think the only justifiable thing to think is Annihilus is Tumazuma. There you go. It makes a ton of sense. It all comes together. I wouldn't have noticed because I was too fixated on like, there's a point at which I'm like, Stan Lee clearly is obsessed with mobility issues at this point. I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> he's not, he's not as old as he is now. I mean, Stan Lee is still around and you would think that just the fact that he's the anything that walks is <laughs> really important to him. But apparently it's a, it's a long-term fixation on him. Um, the, so let, su- I'll super quickly go through the plot of this. Issue. Yeah. Reeds decides that in order to save Sue and unborn baby who will one day become Franklin, uh, he has to get an element that is only found in the antimatter world of the negative zone. Johnny and Ben decide that they are going to follow because in Ben's 
wonderful, wonderful phrase. Nuts, you think you're the only one who takes his hero pills? I love that line. They all go into the negative zone where they, as happens the negative zone, basically accidentally meet the threat. Yeah. The threat in this case is Annihilus. He is, as Jeff points out, a scientist who kidnaps Reed initially, then Johnny and Ben after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and first of all, makes Reed fight the other beings he's kidnapped, then puts Reed back with Johnny and Ben and says essentially, why don't you fight some machines now? Mm-hmm. Uh, they do this until the heroes fight back against Annihilus and it is decided that the device that allows Annihilus to exist, basically, the cosmic control rod, just so happens to be filled with exactly the element Mm-hmm. that it needs to save Sue. They, in a kind of wonderfully dark moment that is not properly explained, just outright steal the cosmic control rod. That's right. And try and get away. And Annihilus follows because he is dying um, and chases after them. You can now see why the story takes 47 pages. He eventually catches up with them after a fairly dramatic chase sequence. Yeah. Uh, leaves them abandoned on the very rock that Reed was on when he was falling into nothingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, uh, they make a deal, as Chef said. They make a deal to, to he, Reed will give them the cosmic control rod back. But in the process, he drains it of energy. Or, in Jeff's eyes, he takes some of the energy. Yes, but let it, me see. It right. really is, well, he's, he's very unclear. He just says, since the antimatter energy can be drained, and since I was carrying a small empty vial in my belt, as you do, mm-hmm. uh, we shall have a chance to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because, again, as you point out, it is ambiguous. I just sort of naturally assumed that uh, they, they, you know, because he says it's a small empty vial and it's literally a size transference, and, and frankly, his vial, you know, um, the small empty vial in Reed's belt looks a lot like a cigarette lighter. I'm kind of like, yeah, it's like, you know, butane, yeah, you know. It's... Exactly. He's only taking it a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's really ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me, I, one of the reasons why I just assumed he emptied it mm-hmm. is the fact that he just steals it ahead of time. He clearly does not care about Nihilus. Yes. No, he totally does not. Um... Um, anyway, so they get home. They get, they get back after, uh, after doing that. And the baby's born, and everyone is fine. The yes. end. Yeah, um, it's also great because uh, it is worth the baby being born gives is kind of the perfect place for the kind of comedic shenanigans and sort of the four, you know, the members of the FF sort of being together and there being some tomfoolery. The tomfoolery mostly coming from the very nervous expectant father that's in the room with them. Um, but it's, in that sense, it's, it, it really is like one of the things that stuns me is it's a 47 page epic and it's moving by like, you know, Annihilus pops up on page four. Like it yeah. does not but, but spend what's a interesting lot of time. Is it, it doesn't waste time, but it also does mm-hmm. because they get the rods and then they get away, and then Nihilus chases them. Yeah, there's a chase scene. There's a scene with the, the with the borers. I mean, it's a it's not paced like your traditional, uh, you know, 
FF comic in that sense, because there is like normally the whole like we beat this guy and then we're set is like, you know, the end of an issue. In exactly. Fact, we'll we, we beat this guy, it. we're set, yeah. the end. Yeah. I, I, and there is a sense that they are playing for time in, in certain respects. Uh Oh, uh, Lee and Kirby? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The only point at which I thought like, because for me, it's very much like, well, we've got a lot of story here. So Kirby's like, well, let me throw a bunch of different action sequences here. And it really does, I think, add to that desperation of here they are racing to get home. And of course, there's all these uh, obstacles in their path. I think my favorite in that sense is the fact that they, at one point, Annihilus unleashes the terribly named The Borers, which was going to be the name of our FF podcast, but we decided on Baxter Building instead. And I, I, I still think that, that that was a good choice that Graham made. I think he, I, I, I was like... However, looking at The Borers, and I will have to put this image up on the website, they look wonderful. They Especially do, don't they? if you look on page 26, Jeff, mm-hmm. I want you to look at The Borer on the bottom left of that image. Mm. And the fact that he looks kind of like, uh? <laughs> Okay, hold on. I, I'm a giant monster with a key for a beak? What? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there mm-hmm. there is something about that design that... Sh- the, it's, they're basically being jumped by, by Sesame Street Muppets. And, but that's, at least for me, considering that we are in the thick of Kirby's Horde of Robots um, Omania... It's such a great change of pace. I'm like, okay, well, so at least the creatures is... are... So, yeah. yeah, so let's talk about this, because Annihilus is a great design. The mm-hmm. borers aren't a great design, but they're a very memorable design. Yeah. When you get to, uh, on page 30, Annihilus's gunship is a great design. Yes. It is such a, a very distinctive design. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so much about this issue that feels like the old FF. Yeah. In a way that the book hasn't for the longest time. Yeah. Yeah. The the book feels alive again. Mm-hmm. It really does. And I'm fascinated if it's a little bit of the Kirby. I, yeah, I'm curious. I, I, of course, have my theories, but I sort of want to talk, talk. I'll talk about them more when I think in the Inhuman storyline, of course. Um, but yeah, no, the designs here are great. Although, to be fair, I feel that even when Kirby is sort of at his what I feel is either is most exhausted or is most demoralized. He's going to, he, he loves drawing the tech. So the gunship that's here, the, um, the weird ship that the inhumans end up giving the FF later at the start of the doc doom storyline, great looking stuff. I feel like that's when, that's when Kirby's like, he can't help but draw that stuff. Maybe because he doesn't, you know, it's a completely different, concept from a bunch of characters that can then be taken out of his control you know there is uh one plot point that i i absolutely love mm-hmm. which is long time reader uh, long time readers long time listeners of this podcast will remember that when reed ended up on the rock in the negative zone in the first place nothing could take him away it was impossible yes. no one could come and get him and he was rescued by triton with uh basically an aircon yes uh they end up on the rock again and nothing can save them apart from having their own jetpacks so they can jump. <laughs> it's it's almost as if Lee and Kirby are like, okay, the rock thing was dumb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, it is, it's, again, there's a weird fixation with 
it like i uh, if we're if we buy into the idea that the negative zone is reed richards sort of own personal underworld um that he has to descend into there is something fascinating that there is just a point at which everything gets drawn into this one point and completely destroyed and i don't know you know this and this is where it would be fun to actually talk to a genuine you know union about what that what is that supposed to represent is that supposed to represent kind of the the end point of the ego or the self or whatever i mean it's one of those things again there is there's dream logic and then there's when you get a little closer toward the end like cheating the rules and kirby's a notorious cheat and sometimes what's rough i think is is that lee uh, doesn't know how to interpret kirby's rules and so make something up and so it can be very very inconsistent you know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um but i but for whatever reason maybe because i think i came to the negative zone much later in the other ff stories the idea of this point this event horizon essentially where it is very much like entering a black hole. Like there's this level at which once you hit it, it's the point of no return and you can never escape from it. And everything beyond it is just destroyed. Uh, you know, that never really pops up in the later negative zone stuff that I can remember. And, and I always it, find it, it really becomes resonant. a lot easier to, to get in and out. And actually, mm-hmm. even in this story, it's a lot easier to get in and out of the next. Yes. Yeah, when yeah, the negative yeah. zone first appeared, you opened the door and you were basically fucked. And here, here yeah. they can basically jump in and out really easily. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although in this issue as well, they pass from the antimatter into a matter element before they cross through. Yes, it's really interesting as well. Yeah, which sort of so. I part of this is you know Stanley, his scientific knowledge is not the best, which mm-hmm. we've talked about many a time. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even it, it's actually a plot point in the story. That matter and antimatter can't touch. Like it's it's specifically called in dialogue. Dialogue. It's it's it is. It's dr- I, the thing that's hilarious. It's strong. The, you get yeah. re- the the reads almost shaking hands with the antimatter monkey mm-hmm. man. Yes, and they explode. Yeah, and that that's one of those great like those are the ones where I'm like, why are we playing for time here? With this, I found that really fascinating. I didn't but, know if that was a like pacing the thing. The borders or... as well is a mm-hmm. really odd, um, an unnecessary length of a sequence mm. because mm. it doesn't really do that much. And the resolution of the borders scene is really odd in relationship to the end of the story because to get away from the borders, Reed uses the cosmic control rod and worries right. that he's about to empty it. Mm. And then later mm-hmm. he steals some more, which again is why I thought that he just finished it. Mm, right. <laughs> I didn't think there was that much left. He clearly didn't because the Nihilus sticks around. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, that's actually a really good point. Uh, the cosmic control rod is, it again, does work at sort of that, that dreamlike level. But yeah, that the thing that I thought was fascinating was for me, I thought there was a pretty decent, acceleration of the hmm. it reminded me almost of like i realized sort of like oh i wish they had 
worked in the cosmic control rod as like one of the infinity gems, you know, not to be all later Marvel nerd boy, but it really is one of those weird, like it has the power when Reed has it, he can basically do anything, you know? And one of the things that I thought was interesting is, is Kirby uses that to get them out of the problem with the borers. And then he has to come up with ways to make that Maga- to keep to keep um, tension going, despite the fact that they basically now have a, a magic wishing rod. Oh, well, but but that's exactly what happens. So the cosmic control rod allows them to fly away from the borers. Mm-hmm. It allows them to later deflect a missile, mm-hmm. and yet they still somehow end up trapped on the rock. Well, because energy itself is totally neutralized in this area, which is. One of those, like, sure? Like, you know, yeah, it's exactly. a... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Energies have totally neutralized in this area, but that... Later, they literally just jump off it. Yeah. No, exactly. You know? And like, using their no little sense. special... The yeah. story makes no sense at that yeah. point. Yeah. But it looks lovely. I think the Kirby uh, and art is some of the best there's been in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the final two pages in particular... Have have just some great acting, yes, uh, yeah. from Lee from Kirby and and Sinnott. and some of the prettiest Kirby art in a long time as well. Yeah, I think so as well. Also, page forty seven, the happy thing, the last mm-hmm. panel, of page forty seven, the happy thing, looking at the reader, is the most Ben Grimm will ever look like Fozzie the Bear. Yeah, it's totally true. It is totally true. Yeah, it's totally. Waka waka. Ah, yeah, no. And I also love him in, which is amazing because two, two pages earlier on page 45, um, that panel where like Johnny's upset and, 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 and Ben Ben's puts been, his, Yeah. I, I love that panel as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just gorgeous. It, just stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I said this last time. I really like this issue. I think this is the strongest issue that there's been in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. There's uh it you know, um it's and it's it just helps that it's super gorgeous. It is fascinating to me though that one of the things that I find is at, as strong as it is. And honestly, I'll tell you, I think issues 82 through 87, like you said, Kirby and Lee are once again like on a roll as long as you are not especially interested in logic or endings, you know? Sure, but I, to be fair, I think that's always been the case. Oh, it is, but I really felt that this was, that there was, that there was some next level stuff in this. I mean... Well, okay, let's let's skip on to 82. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. that's for 82, uh, the mark of the madman. You'll remember issue 81 featured Crystal finally joining the team. So, of course... On the first page of issue 52, uh, 82, <laughs> she's telling everyone that she has to leave the team. That's right. That's logic, ladies and gentlemen. And thankfully, no one in the book actually said something like, Dames, can you figure them? Which, let's face it, was pretty much a Stanley go-to at this point. <laughs> it is just luck that no one says that. Instead, yeah. Crystal needs to leave because she needs to go back to the Inhumans to get their approval. Yeah for joining the Fantastic Four in the first place. That is, of course, a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. What she really needs to do is lead all of the Fantastic Four back to have another confrontation with Maximus the Mad. 
Yes, although let's not forget about the Alpha Primitives, too. The Alpha Primitives, wonderful, and I feel it's the name that should be adopted for, like, the, the Men's Right Association or some people like that. <laughs> Come on, the Alpha Primitives, right? It's I'd... totally true. It's totally true. Yeah, that is great. Um, Don't fight them. It's hopeless. They can't be beaten. I yeah. think, I mean, I think everyone knows what I'm saying. Yeah, I see where you're going with here. Yeah. I get you, Mr. Social Justice Warrior. I get you. The Alpha Primitives, one of the things that blows my mind is that are referred to here as the Inhumans Deadly Drone Race. And it's fascinating. all manner of questions. It does! This oh, wait, is the we, thing. Wait, we should say, because we actually interrupted ourselves talking about the plot. Oh, uh, yes. Crystal is about to go home. Lockjaw shows up. Yes. And she thinks it's to take her home. But instead, he is letting the Alpha Primitives... The Inhumans Deadly Drone Race, remember, attack the FF. That's right. Yeah, let's – tell you what. I'll let you do the rest of the recapping, and then you can listen to me. Uh, Hopefully, I'll keep my rant about the Alpha Primitives super short. Okay. Okay. So uh, the Alpha Primitives attack, and they win. Uh, Mm -hmm. But instead of looking to defeat the Fantastic Four, they actually just want to kidnap Crystal and take her back to Maximus, who is once again in charge of the Inhumans. Yes. Inhumans apparently – very, very docile people <laughs> that will basically obey whoever calls themselves the king. Yeah, pretty uh, much. It helps that he has God. locked up the men and defeated Medusa by, and I quote, coating her hair with a chemical of his own invention. Yeah. He also has, is controlling Lockjaw the dog with by taping a hypnostud on his impervious hide. That's right. Because explanations everyone he just seems to want to do this in this issue for the sake of it you find out in the next issue there is a plan mm-hmm. uh, this issue not so much the rest of the fantastic forward side they are of course going to rescue crystal she's one of them now right. and by the time they get to atalan they are first of all kidnapped because that's what happens mm-hmm. Always end up being kidnapped, um, and then attacked by a giant robot who kind of looks a bit like a monkey. He's called yes. Zor. Zor the robot monkey. Uh, Zor is power personified. He says Zor has a great thing of talking about himself in the third person. Yeah, he does. So he gets punched by the thing and says, "Zor is not a battleship. Zor is power personified." <laughs> I love that. I love that Zor will like first start with what he's not, and then say. <laughs> Zor is not a table. Zor is a robot monkey. <laughs> I know. He's a delightful robot monkey. I have to say that part of me is, again, I'm a little dubious about the idea that, that, that Kirby's going to knock himself out on design for characters at this point. Um, a robot monkey, Jeff. No, but I, and I got to say, I love Zor. I'm like, man, there's so many boring motherfuckers that, you know, Kirby has been has designed, like, next issue, we will meet uh, Maximus's henchmen. And let oh, me tell you, what's that? Jeff, if you're going to say anything bad about Maximus's henchmen, then you and me are going to fight because they're great. Okay, here comes a fight, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, let's just say that um, they could, they've, they've been used since. I don't know if we've ever seen Zor, the amazing robot monkey, and we really should because he hey, does. Let's, let's... Again, let's bring Zor back for all new, all different Zor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can still talk about himself in the third person, but now he wants Zor, to help. Zor, Zor does, in fact, defeat the Fantastic Four, however. And the issue ends with Maximus revealing his greatest weapon, an unlimited-range hypno-gun 
which shall soon send its matchless rays across the entire planet. Yeah. Next, shall man survive? Spoilers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeff, rant away, my friend. Okay. So there's a few things. One, I have to say that I am uh, a little underwhelmed by Maximus as a villain. It's one of those deals. Perhaps it's just, I don't know, despite the fact that he's been given a, a tinfoil uh, oh, Aztec battlesuit in this. Aztec is this great. Not only because it is a piece of amazing design, yeah. but also for people who, of a particular age, for Marvel readers of a particular age, it's the Beyonder's battlesuit from Secret Wars 2. Yes. Yeah, that's actually a great point. You're absolutely right. So I love the design. And frankly, it looks like some sort of I'm completely hapless here. But it seems very Incan or Mayan or there's yeah. some weird Central American tribal I'm, influence I'm not sure there. if there really is as much as we're both seeing Kirby's version of Aztec design. Yes, exactly. From the Eternals. Yeah. Because that's what it's very reminiscent of. It's yeah. very reminiscent of, of the Kirby designs for the Eternals. Yeah. So um, that's fabulous. And uh, there's a panel, there's a full page splash of Maximus that I will get to in issue 83 that I'm crazy about. But A, Maximus is, the last time we saw him was such a figure of madness and pathos uh, that his transition to suddenly being a threat and um, composed and very much in his sort of evil... Yeah, he's really generically evil. Yeah, exactly. He's pretty much, I'm bad because I'm bad. I want to take over the world because I'm bad. Yeah, there, there is, there is, he is about as flat as flat can be. Um, the Alpha Primitives, though, which I really, when I saw them here, I'm like, shit, this, is this their first appearance? And it's not. They actually appear in like issue 47 i think where they're referred to as the alpha primitives and they jump all over i think the ff or maybe the inhumans returning to adelon um and get beaten back this may be and i by maybe i should know because i've read all the issues um they're for the first reference to them as essentially a a the deadly drone race and b very much the idea that um that perhaps in in drawing from H.G. Wells's like the Time Machine, where you have the the Eloa, the the Elite, and the Morlocks, the Alpha Primitives are a weird underclass. They're yes. a bestial servant class that is very strange. It's 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 pretty Don't uncomfortable. Think about it too much because it suddenly makes the Inhumans seem slightly disturbing. Oh, completely. Completely. Because Maximus isn't always in charge. Yeah. And so that suggests that when Black Bolt and Medusa are, they're perfectly fine with just keeping those alpha primitives down. Also, yes. they're called alpha primitives. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there is a lot of... Um, it, it's interesting that for such a long time, the humans who sort of float by as a very kind of... You know, they're basically a super city of super beings, which, you know, uh, Kirby goes on to revisit in Supertown and the Forever People. Uh, and again in the Eternals. That's right. Um, 
but and maybe uh, maybe he's very aware because in the Eternals, of course, he does have the deviance. Um, he is enough of a, I guess, realist to be aware that where there's an overclass, there's going to be an underclass, and somehow by making the underclass completely bestial savages does not comfort anyone who you know is. I guess aware of colonizer narratives, I suppose. You know exactly that there there really is something very disturbing about the Alpha Primitives. Yeah, and it's one of those things that that at least for me, um, you guys may or may not end up hearing me rant about this because I think I feel those cards get played much more explicitly around the time of FF 150. So. Um, We'll we'll get back to it. Let's just say that Jerry Conway, if nothing else, no is aware that that is weird and 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 doubles down on that later on. But for here, it's just enough of a creepy thing. Um, also, well, uh, uh, we'll save it for the Doctor Doom thing. But uh, yeah, there's some really well, weird. It, stuff. It, this is the start of the obviously the six issues that we're going to do, but six issues that we're going to cover this time have a very clear theme, which is you want to defeat the Fantastic Four. Hypnosis is fucking great. Yeah. And I wonder if Kirby or Lee was the one who had clearly just learned that hypnosis was that useful. (laughs) Because in this story and in the next story, the Fantastic Four are rendered powerless by hypnosis. That's not true. The Inhumans are rendered powerless by hypnosis in this story and the Fantastic Four in the next story. Yeah. So for me, my thing, Graham, do you want do you, if you're ready for Jeff's theory about this? No, I, I of course I'm ready for Jeff's theory. Okay. So as you know, Jeff's previous uh fixation was on the idea of the Fantastic Four and duplicates. The there's a lot of the FF are being duplicated, there's duplicate figures coming in and taking over and standing in for people. Very much to me uh, a little bit of Kirby's um fears or anxieties about being replaced of being replaceable in his, where he stands in Marvel. I I kind of wonder if there's a point at which he's talked to some things are, are covered between him and management and he walks away a little bit happier, but now instead of duplicates, we have this fixation on hypnosis where now you have the real figures but there is a, someone over them who is a draining their power and b making them do what they don't want to do. That is what I will only describe as a Jeff Lesterian theory. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jeff's going to be drinking himself to to sleep tonight. Um, it's, no, I totally see where you're coming from, but also it, part of me is like, I feel you're stretching. Oh, my friend, we haven't even gotten to the bald guy in the Doctor Doom storyline, so wait till we oh, get there. But, oh, but he's, he's, he's special. Let's move on, on to FF83. Yes. Shall man this... survive? No, Jeff. What is the title of the story, really? Because this is, this is a sentence. If the FF fail, then humans must then decide, shall man survive? Spoilers, <laughs> yes. I do, I do like that you... You had the dramatic voice there. Thank you. Well, I was going to... Because that's the part that I wanted to say. <laughs> we should totally just have... We should have a bonus episode 
of Baxter Building where we just recite all the titles. Now, and that can even be you saying all the titles in full and me just saying the taglines, but it would be, to use a Grammy in turn of phrase, spectacular. So, Patreon supporters, if you want that special episode as a Christmas present, yeah, just let us know if you want to celebrate the holidays with Jeff and I reading the episode. <laughs> See, now you make it sound like you're going to put, like, Christmas music in the background, like Deck of Halls or something like that. (laughs) Worlds within worlds, are you listening? (laughs) It shall not survive, so it's listening. (laughs) So, yes, issue 83. Uh, Let me just say... um, People, as you can tell, Graham's good with the recapping. I'm just the guy who stands on the street corner and yells things at passerby. It opens with the FF inside a inside a cell that they are unable to escape, a prison that seems I, I, to be I, I, unbreakable. I love, love the scene so much because this scene is essentially a page and a half long, right? Yeah. At the start of page two, Ben Graham points out. Even a human torch can't do nothing against a joint that's fireproof. Mm-hmm. At the start of page three, there's nothing that Ben can't make a dent in. <laughs> and did they both become such fans of each other? <laughs> I, I get that Stanley is trying to get the you guys they're trying. Yeah. Well, but one, it's it, kind of amazing. Uh, spoilers, by the way, it's a hypnotic cell somehow. Yes. And by it's a cell of the mind. Yes. And in case you want to know who spoils it, Spoilers, it's Stanley who spoils it for you because he says that on page two. He has Reed deduce that, and then they just stand around like idiots trying to break it down anyway. In a case of. It is wonderful, isn't it? It's really. Even though I know we're under a purple hypnotic spell, how do you know that, Reed? Yes. Yes. How do you know that? Yeah, it's it's one of the things it it's 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 Stan doing his like, oh, Reed knows the score. Reed always knows the score. But so I the... do love that uh he then explains that when the thing punches the wall, mm-hmm. it gets hypno recoil. Yes. Yeah. Here comes the hypno recoil. Let's face it. I I very much feel that it's the idea that it's this perfect prison. They don't understand why. And then later on page 15 or whatever it is, when they figure things out and free themselves. Okay, great. But the fact that they're sitting there on page two being like, I believe it's some sort of hypno cell. What can we do? What if let's I just, yeah. Let's just keep hitting it. It makes them seem even more dumb rather than, than making them seem super smart on page 12 yeah. when they come up with this solution. It's really a case of of Stan being like, okay, okay, let's, you know, like, let, I, I've got it. And this isn't the only time I feel uh, in these sets of issues where the setup is more or less blurted out by Stan on page two in order to give the issue, I think he thinks more drama or coherence. I really feel he's over second guessing things. At this yeah, point. either way. He's he's um he's overreaching. Yeah, yeah, he because, definitely is. Because you don't need to know that. Yeah, like it it actually lessens the drama. Yeah, yeah. That 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 readers has worked it out that early. Yeah, it really does. But but we go from that to find out that Maximus, who at this point is in full on like Roman 
yes. mindset. Mm-hmm. Fascinatingly enough, and 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 Luke as well. Well, and that watching. yeah, that is the only point where I'll give you. Like, I personally think the group of people surrounding him, Stalior and Leonis. And... Oh, they're hilarious. Uh, spoilers. Stalior is called Stalior because he's a centaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Linus has got Linus because he's got a lion face. Yep. They, and... are, they are hilariously terrible. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I, see? I, I love it. <sighs> it really does uh, make me think that, like, Kirby's like, I, I should probably, like, I should probably call him someone new. Yeah. Like, I, I really should. But, uh, but at the same time, do you not see the origins of new gods there? Uh, I do, especially in Aereo, I think, um, you know. Who... No, but also like, what's he called? Stalior? Mm-hmm. Stalior really reminds me of Lonar. Which one's Lonar? Is he's Lonar he's the... literally the new gods uh, character who rides a horse all the time. Oh, okay. Uh, could be. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, but, but they, but they are like, they, they're so, they're very close to the new gods. They're they're a stroke of of genius away. Yeah, and I think that maybe that's it for me. Is is like I think that's absolutely an excellent point. And they're not terrible, but they, well, they are. but they are kind of terrible. They are kind of terrible, and that's my thing. Is is that I feel that Kirby's like I know that I should design these guys, but like compared to the original group of Inhumans, they're oh exactly they're they're far less inspired. Like yeah. the original humans had some really interesting uh, visual dynamics going on, had some really great designs. And this one is pretty much, uh, it's a guy and he's a horse. It's a guy and he's a lion. Uh, yeah. It's a woman and she likes birds. That's right. And, it, and he's a tree. The only thing that, that really works for me about them is, like you said, it the the idea of Maximus in sort of mad Roman emperor mode is these guys all have all all do seem sort of nicely there's a greco roman kind of air to their design in a way yeah. Yeah, that that really is. just sort of more or less operates like almost at the level of the subliminal uh and so it works i also have to say despite it's, you're, say page 5 right Cause yeah these guys uh these new humans are are dressing Mm-hmm. Maximus after his bath to get him prepared for page five, which is a, just a, a spectacular page. It's a splash of Maximus looking at the reader in his battle armor. Yes. Um, and it's just, a, a the design is amazing. The design is amazing and also noteworthy is the sneer. I'm so glad you mentioned the fact that the other guys are sort of one g- stroke of genius away from the new gods because this, to me, Maximus is so amazingly dark side on this page. The the sneer, his sneer, his eyes, his directly looking at the reader, and even even the the encasing head helmet. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 there. You can see it right. It's underneath the surface, and it's and here it is stunning. So yeah, it's like Maximus is kind of a a. a a wet cap as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, but visually he levels up a lot. And to be oh, fair, God, Stan's yes. trying his hardest with the dialogue here. He really I shall blanket all mankind with the giant hypnogun. And at the moment, my invincible weapon is thus unleashed. All who walk or swim or crawl upon the surface of the earth shall be mine to command 
forever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's true. There is some stuff in here where I actually think uh, Lee generally is on point with a lot of his dialogue and and the meter of his dialogue. Because there, there is some stuff in here that, like, um, you mentioned his science in Annual 6 is not the best. But I do love the thing where, on, on page 5 of the annual, where he says, Our human vision needs a few minutes to readjust itself, to correctly transmit such alien images to our brains. I thought that was great. You know, it really I, I, is I mean, that. In many ways, Lee is the savior of, of 83, because 83 features some really ropey plotting from Kirby. Oh, For yeah. example, immediately after you see Maximus give his speech, uh, it cuts to Black Bolt and Karnak, uh, Gorgon and Triton, who are encased in an unbreakable prison. We mm-hmm. know it's unbreakable. The previous issue, uh, Karnak has told us it's unbreakable. So what happens to the next page? They break it. Yes. Yeah. Because the plot demands that they break it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Lee really does try his best to make it seem like, you know, oh, my God, we're trying so hard. Like, this is a, a last-ditch attempt. Uh, and even when it, the prison breaks, he did it. We're free. And yes. Medusa's watching, saying, only Medusa can know the strain, the torments he suffered. Mm-hmm. So, he, like, Lee makes it seem like, you know, this really was, it took a lot to do this. Yes. But in terms of plotting, they break out because they break out. Right. Right. And it is one of those things where Kirby, because Lee sets it up quite sensibly. There is a little bit of the, oh, shit, if Black Bolt says something in this enclosed space, it could kill everyone else, which makes a ton of sense. It's a good dramatic way to track trap Black Bolt, but it is so not dwelt on. They just all kind of break out and then Medusa has to sort of explain everything on the fly before the alpha primitives jump in. Um, and, and, but again, and, and, okay, two things. One, Medusa's release is also yes. driven by the plot and nonsensical. Yeah. Literally, the hypno potion wears off mm-hmm. at the same time the Black Bolt escapes. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Because that, sure. Um, but when the Alpha Primitives escape, it's fascinating to me that the next two pages are essentially silent. Our yes. Kirby action scene, they're silent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 in a way that is especially great, because before this, it's the sort of thing that Lee would draw attention to the fact that he's shutting up for. And here yes. he just shuts up. And so it's as a pacing change. It's fabulous. You know, it, but when you're reading through this, at least the first time, did you did it stop you as well? Like I stopped short at that. Mm. It was very strange to me. Oh, it is very strange. Silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. And if it wasn't for the fact that there is a, a caption in the upper left-hand corner, part of me is like, yeah. yeah, you know, you, you would be like, did, did the letters fall off? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then, and even more strange is, yeah, you go to page nine and the first two panels are still wordless. And then, when the sound cuts in, so to speak, with uh, Triton talking, it's it 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 works really well. I have to say, it's it's but definitely it's, a new trick. But it is but don't, like one of the things that's very strange about it is not just there's no dialogue, there's no sound effects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. There's. No, and it's yeah. really odd looking at those pages and there being no sound effects. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, very strange. 
No, and and it is one of those weird like yeah. I don't know I don't know why they made those decisions. Maybe it was just literally like Lee was either in a hurry or he just couldn't think of a way. I mean, there's there's a way in which the posing is not optimal to have a lot of people say things. Although that doesn't That's never stopped him before. That's never stopped him before, exactly. So yeah, no, I don't I don't get it. I'm just I'm sort of grateful for it. I mean it sort of reminds me of that trick that they do in modern action movies now where like you know, like a flashbang grenade goes off or somebody gets, you know, a, a, someone shoots a gun right next to someone's ear. Exactly. And you have the silent scene or you have the scene that's treated visually differently and, and, and it provides some some narrative break. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, and it's, it's, but it's, it's a very strange thing. Yeah. But it's a very effective action sequence. Yeah. It leads on to a cutaway, actually. A cutaway of... Sue essentially just putting blankets around the baby and saying, mm-hmm. "Well, can't think of a name of from yet." <laughs> I, which I really, I was like, "Really, Stan? Really? Is that is that where you're gonna go?" Because uh, it is. It's this idea of like, "Oh, Reed was always so good about this sort of thing," and I'm just sort of like, "Yeah, was- I can understand how you construct that." Ju- right? Exactly. Was he? Really? Okay. Reed is, Reed is so good at... Because, I mean, it, it doesn't help that literally Reed is so good at things like this, she says, is because she's reading a book mm-hmm. and saying she's getting confused. Yeah, it really is. It's not... It's like, really? Yeah. That's like that's what you want to say? Because all of that comes across terribly. Yeah, it really But Sue, Sue gets her moment in the sun later on these issues. So Oh, believe let, me. It was wonderful. Let's wait for that. Yeah. We cut back to Reed's uh, Reed and the Red Seam escaping the hypnoprism by, I shit you not, just deciding not to believe in it. Yeah. Yeah. Think harder than you've ever thought before. Think it until with every fiber of your being, you believe it. Yeah. That was actually the name of Reed's self-help book that he published, but it didn't really catch on. <laughs> Read it worked. The walls they vanished. We're back in one of the castle's chambers. Yeah. Oh, uh, Reed. Reed's explain itis. I love it. Like yeah. it's I, nice I, to see the Zor does actually return though. Oh yes, it's great. Although he he looks just a little bit different, a little less gorilla like, and a little more like a robo vampire. But yeah, I'll take he, it. he actually looks a bit more like Claw this time. Oh yeah. I, well, yeah, because he's got the squirt gun hand. So there's that. I Your do. Flame cannot harm Zor. Zor. I, I love the idea of he's like, oh wait, no, I'm Zor. Uh, on page fourteen, there's a great shot where Ben clobbers him with the it's clobbering time as it as a beautiful logo across the page, and it's somehow beautifully put so that uh, Zor is being punched. Um, beyond underneath it. it. Yeah, yes. underneath it and through Zor, it. And it's... Zor's flying under its clobbering time, yeah. which was really helpful of, of Maximus to leave that banner just floating around. The whole... <laughs> You're <laughs> Thanks, killing Maximus. me, Buster. Yeah. Um, I, why that's not a t-shirt, though, that to me t-shirt. is such a perfect, beautiful, little all-purpose, this is the thing and what he does best If, if we would not get our asses sued. Oh, yeah. Sued nine different kinds. But yeah, that would be the best, the best shirt ever. So, But it turns out that Zor is not just a wonderful robotic gorilla. Zor has actually been hypnotizing the team. Yeah, that's right. Zor is the response. Zor has a built-in hypno-inducer. 
uh, in his head that has been allowing him to defeat the team. Yeah. Thanks, Reed, for thinking that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just in time, just yes. in time, because it turns out that the Fantastic Four can do all that right, nothing to mm-hmm. save the day, because the team are actually all inside, and Crystal is the one who destroys Maximus's yes. uh, hypno gun, because A, Crystal is awesome, mm-hmm. and B, she's finally decided that enough is enough. Yes. I do actually love that, really, the FF do nothing yeah. in this two-issue story. Yeah. They go to rescue Crystal and end up beating themselves. They manage to get themselves free, but it's Crystal that saves the day. That's right. The 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 one that they had come to save, actually, if you leave out the FF, she gets trapped with the Inhumans. The Inhumans free themselves. She takes apart their gun. They win. So Yeah, it's wonderful. The FF then appear after Crystal has saved the day, mm-hmm. leading to my favorite panel of these two issues, which is Johnny smooches Crystal, while mm-hmm. Karnak says, Crystal, have you so soon forgotten? Our people do not display affection so lightly. Crystal! I love that. That and, and Johnny's sudden, response like, of... Johnny, maybe he'll go away. Suddenly Karnak, in my mind, had Anthony Daniels' voice. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And it works. It really does work. The idea that a guy who basically his one thing is that he can find the flaw in everything, because, of course, he is the world's most ridiculously anal retentive person. And yeah. therefore, he can't help but fixate on the one thing that isn't perfect um, is is perfect characterization for him. Yeah. The idea it, that Karnak it's has. Mm-hmm. It's good uh, stuff. And, and But as this is happening... Maximus just does a runner and flies off in a rocket. It's one of the things that's pretty interesting about the issue is that a it uh, is that Black Bolt shows up to stop the crowd who is supposedly yelling after him he must be made to pay death to Maximus. Um Black Bolt shows up and then you basically get Maximus jumping into a spaceship going this hidden spaceship will take us to the end of the universe if need be, but there's no place too far, no world too distant, no galaxy too remote to keep me from returning. And then he flies off into space and everyone in the last panel is basically like, oh, oh, that's probably not good, which is hilarious. Yes, it really oh, does. Well, yeah, yeah. It does make me wonder if there's supposed to be some other thing going on with that crazy crowd you know, yelling and screaming and flipping out, you know? Um, Who can tell? I actually wonder how much of that is uh, all in there as feeder for Kirby's Inhumans series. I think so. I I, I think so. I mean, that it seems to be the the secret... um, one of the secrets in the scene uh, behind the scenes is, is that Kirby has created the silver surfer and he's created the inhumans and he doesn't really get a chance to do anything with the silver surfer on his own. And even though they make it sound like it's something they're promising forever, he never really gets much of a shot at the inhumans either, which is kind of, well, he does do the, the amazing adventures strip, which is published after he leaves. It's, it's published after he leaves. And he only which, does like three issues, four issues? It doesn't and, really matter much. And, and I don't even think they're full issues. Isn't it a little bit like the Tales of Asgard where no, they it like is. Yeah, cut it's, the it's, book in uh, half? So. Yeah, it is. It's Inhumans and Black Widow. Yeah, 
So, I mean... Which, they're all on uh, Marvel Unlimited, for people who are curious to read them. Yeah. Uh, which is super on. interesting to me, because they're not... I don't think they've ever been reprinted in print. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, why why are they on Marvel Unlimited? Who knows, but God Well, bless. a new Kirby collection just came out this week. A oh, new really? Kirby hardcover from Marvel just came out this week. Hmm. So, they might be in that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe Marvel Unlimited just was like, hey, Inhumans are going to be a big deal. Right. Inhumans are going to be a big deal and Black Widow's a big deal. It's a twofer, you know, so. But that is your, that's your Inhumans two-parter, which is very slight. Yeah. It, it's, it's fun enough, mm-hmm. but coming between the Annihilus Annual mm-hmm. and the Doctor Doom story that follows, it feels, it feels much lighter than I think it actually is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that just is, it's. It's odd that it ends so quickly and again ending with, you know, Kirby's endings getting more and more brusque as we go along. But it it does feel a little um tangential. It it what really helps what really saves it, I think, is the fact that Kirby paces that thing like a boss. There's like you said, the Maximus design work is beautiful, but just looking at the work there, there's – I feel like – and I could be wrong – that there's a lot more um, full-page splashes throughout the issue and that the way Kirby paces for them, you know, again, something I haven't paid attention to. But Kirby uses a five-page grid a lot and, you know, he's gone from six, a six-page grid to sort of a six-panel six grid to a five-panel grid to, of course, he'll accelerate that to four panels. Well, when you're actually hitting four big. panels in these stories. Yes. Uh, in, in this in these six issues, you'll get to him really getting very close to what I consider his DC era pacing. Exactly. Where you have mostly four-panel pages if they're not splashes, but each issue will start with a splash and then a double splash. Yeah. And then settle into four panels a page. And he's he's getting very, very close to that in these issues. Yeah. It, it feels, for those of us who really are familiar with Kirby's DC work, mm-hmm. that he's settling into that mode. Yeah, he's and getting visually to the as well. Visually, mm-hmm. his, his line work is getting much bolder but also cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff that's getting thrown out. I mean, it's interesting. I mentioned the, the Alpha Primitives and being kind of fascinated with them and checking to see if it was their first appearance. And going back and looking at issue 47 after reading these issues, I just opened it really quickly in Goodreader to look at it. I was like, Jesus Christ, because it's Kirby and it's in it, but it is so different. Like... This is, this is, it's, what's amazing is, is Kirby's visual style is still growing. It's still changing and it's still, it's becoming something that, that somehow manages to be, you know, utterly, utterly um, incandescent in terms of the amount of detail that he can put in. And yet somehow still comparatively stripped down to what it's been, which is amazing. Mm. I mean, it's a really interesting paradox that that drives the design of of his pages. That is remarkable. I think so. I know. I think. I think you're totally right. I, these issues really do represent uh, definitely a jump in quality from from the last year, year plus. The, the the issues in this episode are far and away better than the issues in the last couple of episodes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, even so, when you have a lesser arc like these two issues yeah. there's still so much to appreciate and so much to enjoy um and then you come on to 
the four parter that that are, is the last. We really are speeding through this this week. I yeah, that. I know, um, right? The four parter that, that that is the last story that we'll tackle, which is the uh, interestingly enough the the f- last main Doctor Doom story that Lean Kirby will do. It, I think if you look at the development of Doom as a character, mm-hmm. it's really telling that this is the last Doctor Doom story that the, that the creators will do. Mm. Because I think this really sets the template for Doctor Doom stories. Yeah, I think so too. This, this it, to me, is like a lot of the final pieces of the puzzle falling into place. Because it's, it's a Doom story. It's a Doom story about Latveria. Mm-hmm. It's a Doom story that, to a great extent humanize the character although i would say that they pretty much leave that until the last issue mm-hmm. um but also kind of defines the character to a very big extent you know I, it's... I, I, in, right. in large mm-hmm. part because well f- by that i mean oh, i i should explain the, the, the overall arc of this story before we go into its visual issues is doom essentially kidnaps the fantastic four the fantastic four are sent into latveria by shield doom depowers them by hypnotizing them mm-hmm. and is is toying with them as as he does but a again is undone by his own plans mm-hmm. but b it defines him because it makes him seem seem much less ambitious it it's, makes him seem petty in a particular uh-huh. way that i don't think he really has before and doom's been petty as shit before this but there's something extra petty about the storyline and it makes him seem less of a a genuine threat. Well, let me tell you here, Graham, because I feel that 84 through 87 to me is fascinating because uh, I think it is the, the, where the Kirby and Lee tug of war between the comic that we've been reading essentially has the rope break, you know, and that you end up with Lee on sort of one side and Kirby on the other side. And in between them is this fractured story because I still am trying to figure out and we'll get there how the last issue makes any sense whatsoever. And it is fascinating because it is, it is, it is so brusque in its ending that literally Stan Lee cannot figure out a way to to talk his way out of the ending. Which, it, the, in other words, to make the ending seem anything more than it is, which is just a literal stop. And yes. but, but that actually happens in one of the earlier issues in this arc as well, where the story just stops. Mm-hmm. To the point where I was reading and I was like... Uh, but there's there's got to be more. There's it's a very strange arc. Mm-hmm. It's super strange, and and I'm convinced. To me, the thing that I think is interesting is is that. Well, I don't know. As as we'll go on, I think what I appreciate about it is is that it's Kirby actually, in my mind, ends up dipping into areas that that Stanley literally cannot understand, and. For me, it has a lot to do with these four issues are all Kirby as far as I'm concerned in the sense that I feel like he's 
he's doing, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think there's a very strong dose of the prisoner in yes! the, the first that's, two issues of this. That's exactly what I was going to say. It is a prisoner story. Yeah. First two issues of this are very, I mean, it's it's he pretty much places the Fantastic Four in the village. Yeah. I actually looked up the publication day of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, I did uh, too. Because it's 68, and the prisoner is contemporaneous with this, right? Uh, you know, it's the weirdest thing because I thought we were in the 69s for this. Um, uh, according to the the uh, the indicia, mm-hmm. it is it is 68, but that could, that also could be wrong. Really? Because that's interesting. Because yeah, I've got it. You know, at least on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, it lists uh, issue eighty four as March tenth, nineteen sixty nine, and then that's, that's the 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 cover date though. So you've got to work out when it was actually published. So it's like six months earlier. Is that what it is? So it would be like maybe. Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, and and unfortunately, you're right. That is a good point. I forgot. It's also in my sixty nine. It's in the sixty nine folder of the GIT core stuff. That but being it, said, that's cover date. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, I my understanding is is that yeah, it is it is it is a prisoner tribute from Kirby, who we know did love that TV show, and and it does to me. It really makes me wonder because I think I think it's possible he could have seen the entire series by the time you know he does this storyline, right? Which to well, me when, makes when does prisoner air? Oh yeah. The prisoner, the final episode, the prisoner aired uh, February first, sixty-eight. So no matter what the day was, he like the series was over. Yeah, exactly. So now, whether or not how he managed to, I mean, of course, we're thinking about that's when he, it aired in Britain, right? But we don't necessarily know when it hit the U.S. That's true. We? So it's a little bit. Let's put it this way: it is very clear to me that the first few issues are it's the Fantastic Four in the village. Whether or not it extends to the ending, because, of course, as you know, the ending of The Prisoner is itself um, uh, a little bit of a mindfuck. But for me, there is so much that is piled in here. And there there are basically there are three stories. One of them is, you know, the superhero comic that is the FF versus Doctor Doom. You know, there is the FF in the village uh, as a prisoner tribute. And there are, there's at least two other narratives, one having to do with the artist who is painting doom's portrait. Uh, and the final few issues, which are the village under attack by doom's crazed omnivorous robots. Um, and that to me is, like I said, I don't think that, I think as much as Stan is working overtime and to explain, because there's plot points here that literally get dropped after two issues. Um, mm-hmm. Let's, well, let's it, go. It, the, whole, yeah, yeah. the whole thing does not make sense. Uh, it, it doesn't. For the final issue to work, yeah. the previous issue does not. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, but okay, let, let's go through this. So uh, Fantastic Four issue 84. Yeah. The name is Doom. Yes. Or maybe the name. <laughs> Starts with the Fantastic Four are flying back from Atalan mm-hmm. in what is only described as a nutty gizmo. No, it's a uh, real gyro but, ship, according to uh, according to uh, Crystal. Yeah, but Crystal, come on! I think <laughs> it's, it's, 
Also, can we talk about the design of it? Because again, it is a wonderful design, but it looks as if it lands, it would actually crush Reed Richards. Oh, completely. It It is one of those deals that is really... Uh, makes you think that kind of with the Nihilus and stuff, like Kirby's into like insectile shapes, you know, for some of his stuff and his tech. And this looks beautiful. But yeah, there's no way that you could land or take off with that in any sort of understandable, conceivable way. And yet it's beautiful. Um, it is beautiful. Yeah. Um, on the way home, they are interrupted by S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D., ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Who- Pretty much are like, we are sending you into Latveria because we have discovered an arm, a robotic arm, that will want to fuck you up. Yes. And you guys know Doctor Doom, so why don't you go in and find out what the fuck is going on? Yes. I think that's a a nice way of saying it. While this is happening, however, we Mm -hmm. have a cutaway to a scientist escaping from a prison. From yes. deep within the castle's, the castle's catacombs, only to be shot by Doctor Doom, and again following on from Maximus in the previous issue, um, mm-hmm. issue uh, page five of this issue, mm-hmm. the full page splash of Doom revealing himself holding the pistol. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's just a, an amazing piece of art. It, yeah. it, it's so great, and Doom. Lee gets in some good Doom dialogue in this run. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is some of the stuff that I dearly love, uh, where Doom actually says, uh, upon confronting this escaping prisoner with a gun, have I not told you how I dearly love my subjects? Did you think I would allow a single one to leave this realm? The welfare of my people is ever closest to my heart. What a pity that I am so often forced to save you from yourselves. That is why my invincible robot army stands guard both night and day, for no one knows what is best for you except your mighty sovereign, Dr. Doom. That's awesome. All of that yeah, no, is... No, it's it's wonderful. And the next, the next page you have, how ungrateful are those who will not accept the rule of Dr. Doom? Do I not give them shelter, provide them with foods? And all that I ask is total blind obedience. Yes. And... You know, which is great. It's broad enough mm-hmm. to, be, to be comedic. Mm-hmm. But there's something in there that's also just wonderfully compelling. Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, also, that's is. the same page that uh, shows that while Stanley has heard the word soliloquy, no one has taught him to spell it. <laughs> it, is, it is an all-time spelling boner. As S-O-L-I-L-O-Q-U-E-Y. U-E-Y. It's like Huey, Dewey, and soliloquy. Uh, Dr. Doom shoots that poor dude. And then we cut back to uh, Nick Fury... Explaining, uh, you've got to go into Latveria, you guys. My favorite thing about it is that how did the FF get into Latveria? They drive in. Yep. They, they, this is one of those things where, again, I think Stan is trying to counteract Jack in a way that is makes a lot of sense. Because you have them drive in and Reed basically says, our plan is to go in as us and be captured and then find out what's happening. Despite the fact that once they do cross into Latveria and then a, a magnetized highway tears apart their car, which I think is which wonderful. Which is wonderful. Yeah, yes. absolutely great. Reed then begins shouting like, Remember my orders, don't resist, follow my lead. And then, of course, what happens is as soon as they grab Crystal, Johnny 
turns into a big ball of flame and and starts fighting them. So we so get then a... they all fight, which yeah, is my favorite thing. Yeah. Don't fight them. And as soon as it's not even Crystal, he's okay for Crystal to be captured. As soon as they shoot yeah. Johnny, yep, Reed's like, "Fuck it, I'm fighting back." Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which again is like, is that sort of half-assed? You know, but it works. I I enjoy the fight scene. There's a lot in it. I love uh, Mr. Fantastic firing a gun on page 13. I think he looks awesome as shit. And then on page 14, where Ben picks up one robot and violently slams it into another robot, breaking both of them, it just looks awesome. Right? It's really, really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that that fight scene ends, unsurprisingly, with the robots defeating the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all knocked out. They're collected by the robots and Doctor Doom. And the next morning, they wake up and they're woken up by it looks like Heidi's dad, <laughs> uh, who's playing a who I shit you not is playing a Glockenspiel yes. to wake them up. Yeah, which is hilarious. It is the best page. I love page sixteen so much. It is really fantastic. They they basically find out that everyone in Latveria is really happy they're there. They're Mm -hmm. so happy they're there. In fact, they've declared it Fantastic Four Fiesta Day. (laughs) And welcome them to the the town, the sleepy village, shall we say. Yes. As the Fantastic Four, understandably, are like, what the hell is going on? They try and leave only for Reed to be stunned. And a floating television to appear with Dr. Doom on it saying, nobody ever leaves Latveria. You will remain here and be eternally happy or else you die. I got to say, I, I love this issue. I really do. But I, I, the way it ends, this is actually the issue where I was like, is that really the end of it? Well, because there is a little bit of the – because of the way that it's paced, it really – A, it zips along and B, there's stuff that um, – you don't necessarily need like Kirby is doing some stuff like you don't there's an entire page of of the FF passing through a communist country uh, complete with, you know, unhappy people and military dudes everywhere, waving them through and saying, like, those well, and, guys and are never coming like, back. And a building's on fire or something. Like, yes. It, yeah. I mean, it really is that. like something is something is going on there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very oddly paced issue, but it 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 just literally just stops. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but there you go. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is missing in this issue and will appear with the next mm-hmm. and end up being integral for the storyline mm-hmm. is uh, Doctor Doom's Nazi friend. Two things: the Nazi friend and the guy painting his portrait. Who I, I'm convinced I will later go on to talk to. You. Try and convince you, although it'll all be in vain, that that Kirby is trying to tell a story about uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby in the middle of this narrative. So, uh, let, let's go on to issue uh, eighty-five. Eighty-five yep. is called "Even the Fabulous Multi-Powered FF Find Themselves Helpless Within This Tortured Land." Yes. Yeah, and this is where some of the plotting gets, unfortunately, very, very screwball. Uh, because, again, we have a situation that I, I think is, um, th- again, some, some dialogue that I do love from Doom. On page two, he tells the FF, you will b- obey every order and be punished for every infraction for the rest of your natural lives. And I, I adore that. That is just such a wonderful... 
apt little summation of what fascists <laughs> get out of fascism that it's just it's great but again in that classic stan lee being like wait wait you guys don't put down the comic at page two i'll explain the hook is doom says you will find resistance futile for i have neutralized your powers and kind of sucks when on the next page ben tries to do something and then everyone acts surprised that he is easily defeated and that johnny can't flame on despite being told by dr doom that they have no powers so but here is something that i find particularly interesting about that Mm -hmm. doom has neutralized their powers but ben still looks like the thing yes yeah there is some sort of the same way that i thought that it was unfortunate that that Lockjaw is referred to as having an interdimensional screen rather than a portal in the previous issues, which makes it really weird when people keep jumping through the screen and Reed keeps talking about they've closed the screen. The idea of of neutralizing their powers um, is this weird moving blob in terms of... Well- it is and it isn't, because even within the last issue, almost immediately this issue, mm-hmm. you are told that what has actually happened is they've been hypnotized. Yes. So it's not that their powers are neutralized as much as they just can't use them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, again, it, it helps by putting them neutralized in in this area where Doom is both killing them with kindness and also subverting them and they don't even know it. So Mm -hmm. uh, something that is very interesting about that I realized with this issue, but it's actually been happening for another couple of issues and continues throughout the remainder of this mm storyline. Page five of every issue is a full page splash. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because if you look at page five of this, you see doom with his amazing setup. Mm -hmm. I do love Uh, that. and if you look at the next few issues, you'll see that page five is is the villain. Mm. Is Flash the villain? And right. it's with Maximus in 83. Wow. Wow. And Doom with the gun is on page five of the previous issue. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the next issue is going to be a hilarious uh, Doom getting up out of his chair and looking kind of bored. But <laughs> still full page Flash. So Doom goes goes through uh, literally a hole in the floor with his chair, which mm-hmm. I find hilarious. And we meet one of the two most important characters in the storyline, mm-hmm. uh, who are not Doctor Doom nor the Fantastic Four. That's it right. is instead Hauptmann, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite favorite neighborhood Nazi. Well, okay, so Hauptmann is interesting to me. Of course, I I I dig him because he is. Uh, he is a Nazi. I love the fact that he actually worked for the Red Skull previously and makes the mistake of saying that Doom's uh, brilliance rivals that of the Red Skull. It's kind of hilarious, isn't it? Doom's yeah. just like, fuck you, mm-hmm. I'm better than the Red Skull. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that, I, I love that he gets, Doom gets really upset about that. Yes. Know this now and know it forever. Doom has no rivals. None, none. Yeah. None. <laughs> And uh, what rivals non non not non uh, yeah so exactly. one of the it's like dude, dude we've we've gone to this Italian restaurant do you want something to snack on non <laughs> <laughs> 
So everyone, market this is this. Not only is this the issue where Lee and Kirby Ray lock down Doom, but Graham locks down his imitation of Doctor Doom. So you know, it, you've got a convent next door. You're going to blow people up. Aren't you worried about that? I mean, think about who you're going to blow up. Nuns. <laughs> oh God. I thought about making that that horrible, horrific pun, and I took a pass. I'm so glad no. that you could not. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have taken a pass. So, uh, so we we end up with Doom. He's he slaps around Hoptman. I like that scene, but I don't think that it is quite as crucial as uh, as to what ends up coming later for Hoptman. So, I, well, actually, th- this is a great. I, I agree, but this is a great issue for Doom in general yes. because we go from that scene, um, we then go to Doom's robots. Hilariously slapping around rebels mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who then steal Doom's ride. Yeah. Well, first uh, they steal the gun out of him and then they run off and, yeah, grab his ride, which is and great. Doom's, and it turns out that Doom wanted them to do this. All of mm-hmm. this was Doom's plan. But yeah. Doom's overacting while they're doing this is. Yes. I, what? Is. You dare profane your sovereign's personage by physical assault? <laughs> is this how you reward my generosity, my protection? Ungrateful wretches, I am betrayed. I I love that. I love the panel where he's like, whoa, to me, as like a sh- the most hammiest of Shakespearean actors is delightful. And then, of course, in the very next two panels, he's like, all but patting himself on the back for the oh it's they never so suspected funny. they yeah exactly yeah. he's like I am such a great actor <laughs> they they didn't see it coming my <laughs> Doom's plan what plan is equal to Doom's none none <laughs> anyway so they they, they steal uh, Doom's ride yes uh, as he planned and it turns out it's all part of his plan because he is testing to see how deadly his new robot is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the answer is really fucking deadly yeah it's 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 a great little bit of it's it's one of the best ways that you can maybe come up with to kill a page count in that it really does serve a great purpose and it sort of shows you kind of um what a i believe the technical term for it is what a sneaky bastard doom is being in these issues like normally you see doom sort of pretending to be like insisting that he's Machiavellian, but really not. But here you definitely have, he lets the prisoners get away with a gun. And then what's great is they hop into a little battle cruiser that is also armed with more guns. And they're like, ha, not even doom can, can get it, stop us now. And then it's all just pretty much so that a, he can test how it works and b also utterly crush these guys dreams in a way well, that I, is... I really crush these guys well sure but their dreams first let, let let me be clear that's that's part of what doom's kind of digging on although it's kind of hilarious that again the artwork clearly shows that the robot fucking blows up the vehicle yeah and lee makes a point of saying now he seizes the two helpless fugitives binding them to await my guards oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some real cheating on this, which I think is super important. This issue, not. I, I'm like, that's a little funny. It actually actively undercuts the point of the story, I think, when we get to issue 87, I think. Yeah, I, um, I, I think you and I have the same problem with this. Um, or maybe it's issue 86, I guess, the victims. So, yeah. But, uh, so, as as Doom is, is gloating that his plan worked out, he then reveals that there are, there are actually 12 of these robots. That's right. And his, he's going to test them in a big way, Nets, mm-hmm. which is having them destroy 
an entire village. That's right. I have major problems with this in light of issue 87. Mm-hmm. But I think I'll I'll save those until we get to issue 87. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, and this is this is some some weirdo plotting that is going on that that will make things life tough for us. So, uh let's speed through cuz I know We've got, we've got it. We don't have that much to cover, but we've got enough. So the FF uh, gorged themselves on on free food in their delightful uh, outdoor cafe until they all pass out because they have been deliberately sedated. They get dragged into the hypno persuader where they are fed tape recordings that hypnotize them into believing that they are powerless and the in, in a, a, a really interesting way. So yes. Ben and Crystal are basically told you don't have your powers anymore. Johnny yeah. is told you're afraid of fire. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I kind of wish they had um, they they had played this out a little more. Because we actually see, after a little interlude with Sue, where she checks out the world's most unlikely new residence for a newborn, a.k.a. an abandoned mushroom house out in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows oh. who owns it. I know. Have, did you read ahead? I had to, because I was like, what's with the fucking mushroom house? What were it's, you thinking? It's, that's a great reveal. Yeah, um, yeah, there, yeah. there's a two-page sequence where Sue is, A, looking glamorous as fuck. Let's yes. be perfectly honest. Yeah, she looks uh, fabulous. While, while house hunting. Yeah. She goes to a regular house, and lots of people are like, aren't you the invisible woman? And she's like, uh, this is this is no good. And the the real estate agent says, oh, I know where I'll take you. I'll take you to this abandoned space-age house in the yeah. woods. So good. That would be great, right? Yeah. It was yeah. abandoned years ago, he says, even though it looks like a spaceship. <laughs> I just love the idea, like, well, I gotta tell you, this real estate guy on the make, I love the idea he's gonna make some money off of like who uh, owns it? House. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what the heck? I don't know where he came from, but listen, I'll sell it to you for a really small markup. <laughs> Seriously, you're going to, the price is going to be, you can't, you, it's you just steal. can't beat this price. Yeah, totally. Because technically it, it really steal. is. Yeah, we are committing theft by selling you this house. Anyway, so the FF wake up and one of the things that is great is uh, the the scientist in charge in reporting things for Dr. Doom says the treatment was successful, sire. They show no trace of violence. And then you get a great reaction shot of both Ben and Reed. And it says, in fact, they recoil in fear at the very mention of the word. It will be physically and mentally impossible for them to harbor the slightest thought of revolt from now on. And so I shall dismiss them. Go. You may return to the village. That that will last literally until the next issue. Yes. And, and, and not even in quite the same way. One of the things that I think is interesting is, is there's very much this idea that they are being rendered, um, deliberately timid, you know, and, and the fact that that, I feel that the, this is part of where Kirby's trying to go for this. And yet I totally admit you don't see another scene like this apart from just that one moment. Yeah. Um, here comes the other thread that I'm obsessed with on page 18, where Dr. Doom yes. is having his paint portrait painted without Are his mask. Are you obsessed with Doom's outfit in this scene? Because it's amazing. It, Doom it, drops, uh, drops the armor yeah. for one of the few times that Doom has ever dropped the armor in his mm-hmm. existence. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, aside from a, an all-new, all-different Marvel comic that came out this week. <laughs> and spoilers. 
Uh, anyway, he's wearing a, a wonderful outfit that I will put in the, the show notes. But he is wearing this new outfit um, because he's having his portrait painted. By royal decree, my face shall set new standards for masculine beauty throughout the globe, he says. Yes. Yes. Um, and it is it is worth... Uh, there's two things going on here. One, which is hilarious, the guy painting Doom's portrait is bald here, which will not always be the case in, say, an issue uh, or so. And two, um, that Doom basically more or less treats the artist the same way that he treats Hauptmann and then gets a huge note uh, message that, Sire, sire, we can no longer restrain the robots. They're unstoppable. They're out of control. One of the many things that is confusing in this issue is the fact that there are Doom's robots and then there are Doom's super awesome robots. It's been mentioned yes. in the fact that these that Doom's regular guards are also robots, which is amazing because after that initial ant- uh, mark, they don't really act or talk like that. And also they the robots that are these super big fuck up kind of crazy, again, semi-insectile type creatures uh, are also referred to only as the robots. Yes. They they are the pink robots, as I think I'll call them. Yes. Are the least robotic robots in the world. Yeah. They really are, I think. They're very emotional. Yeah. They're they're very uh, emphatic. Yes. They seem to have a surprising amount of free will. For especially Doombots. Yeah. And they also seem to have no problem with complaining about the other robots. Yes. So everything about it leads me to suggest that these are, in fact, people, but like Stanley, for a number of various reasons, uh, paints them as robots, which then leads to more trouble as you've got more robots and the robots attacking other robots. Uh, And in a similar way, you very much get a the plot literally trying to have it both ways in that the robots are one hand unstoppable and out of control and have broken free uh, and are running rampant. And yet at the same time, this is exactly and absolutely according to plan for Dr. Yes, it is hilarious. The robots have broken free and in doing so they will do exactly what they were programmed to do. Yeah. Also the issue ends by the alarm bells going in the village in which the fantastic four have been, and somehow the village all know that they've been targeted for death. Yes. Yes, by referring to it as the, I think it is like the tolls of death or something. The like chimes that. now toll of death. Yeah. The village is sealed. There is no place to flee. Yeah. And then Reed actually says, it's the robot army of Doctor Doom about to launch its first attack. Yes. How does he know that? Yeah. God knows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's literally no reason for him to know that. And yet... He does. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, which leads us into FF86. Uh, trapped and powerless, the fabulous FF finally find themselves among the victims. And I have to say, there's something about the victims that I just adore as a title. Um, I would love to be like the name of a super team. Yeah, it is. It's totally true. The victims. Yeah. So there is a... Uh, to me, this is where the narrative... Um, fractures pretty heavily yes. because the, the, the story really breaks down at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and it, it is among my belief and we could entirely be wrong that my, my personal theory is that the, um, 
the first couple of issues of the story more or less on track as Stan sort of understands it. I think literally Stan cannot understand what is happening in issue 86 and does his best to cover it because I feel that the story has in fact sort of been deviating in very minute ways in the way Kirby's thinking of it and the way Lee thinks about it into a very, very heavy split. I think, and I could entirely be wrong, that Doom has sedated the FF and made them fear violence and then puts them in a situation where essentially they have to fight or die. And they fight. And that the, the whole stand being like, oh, the hypnosis is wearing off, we're getting our powers back, is makes very little sense and almost no reason. Now, with Kirby, of course... Narrative, you know, his logic works in a narrative way, not a real world way. And also to me, one of the things that I think is fascinating is we start off with, you know, this tribute to the prisoner and the weird vibe that I get from the victims. And again, this reason why I don't think Lee can understand what Kirby is drawing on, because maybe Kirby is not drawing on in a very conscious way. Kirby served in World War II, and he ended up fighting in Europe, and I think he, didn't he almost lose his foot to frostbite? And yeah, he was on the front lines. He was literally exposed to stuff that we only see um, sort of in the way that you've got the, the Big Bang creates the universe, and we only see the radiation and the noise and the debris from that event. The farther out we peer into the universe sort of similarly with Kirby, we see this event that he captures in various strange and odd ways um, for the rest of his life, you know, and sometimes it's just cosmic noise, the sense that there's chaos and people slugging one another, but you also see hints of a, anti-fatalism I suppose in the losers but you also see in some of his war covers you get the idea the war left its marks on Kirby and I definitely feel that part of what Kirby's talking about here is this idea of first off you've got this incredibly pessimistic conception of of the country which makes a lot of sense I think in 1969 in which everyone is mollycoddled and fed uh, and shaped by doom. And meanwhile, he is more or less like testing them w military weapons on them, you know, which is, which for 69 is the, is words coming out of the mouths of people, but it's usually not out of the mouths of middle-aged cartoonists, you know, and you also get a narrative here where it's like, these people have all been fed. They've all been happy and they've all been neutered. They've, you know, I think that what's happening to the FF is also more or less happening to everyone else in the village. Like Kirby uh, Lee keeps talking about how unhappy everyone looks, but they don't really. I mean, I think Kirby is very much in this thing of like, it's not necessarily as forced as you might think. Everyone has more or less been emotionally castrated, except when these robots break out. And it literally is like they break out and decide to fuck up the village. And I honestly feel that Doom's whole thing is like, okay, well, basically I'm going to nuke the village rather than let the robots go on and destroy the rest of Latveria. 
in in my little alternate narrative is you get a situation where everyone ends up, including the FF, ends up fighting. That Kirby's belief is it does not matter how peaceful you are. There is no sense of neutering the human spirit, which is when someone comes to fuck your shit up and fuck your village up, you will fight. Yeah, and that that actually makes it solves a lot of the problems I have with Doom's arc here, mm-hmm. because spoilers for the next issue, people. Um, Doom is shown to be so concerned with the beauty of art in his castle mm-hmm. that he downright kills uh, his trusted right hand henchman. That's right. The idea that he he has that impulse, mm-hmm. and yet he's completely okay with. 12 robots killing everyone in a village and then later nuking the village Mm -hmm. does not like is, is contradictory to me. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that he can be, he can simultaneously talk about, uh, loving the country so much, Mm -hmm. uh, that no one gets to leave and be so cavalier about just killing subjects Mm -hmm. does Mm -hmm. not make sense to me. And so the idea that the robots, in, in Kirby's mind or in, in some plot mind, um, the robots genuinely do escape. Mm-hmm. And that they're not programmed to destroy the village, but they end up going on a rampage. And that Doom decides whether to a level of, you know, I, I don't want to do this or, or just like, well, mm-hmm. this is what has to be done. Mm-hmm. But he decides, okay, I, I destroy the village because mm-hmm. you're, you're cutting off a, a limb to save the body. Yeah. Like, that makes much more sense to me. Yeah, I think so, too. And in fact, I didn't articulate it all the way, but I am curious the extent to which this, to me, is almost why the last issue in Kirby's narrative is basically the FF end up going to Doom's castle. And Doom is... And they're basically being, you know, there's a great sequence with Sue and Crystal running and being gunned at and they they break into a room and Kirby is setting the table for a feast for them. Uh, sorry, Kirby. Doom is setting the uh, table. It's setting a feast and he's more or less saying, like, I want the rest of the FF to show up and then I'm going to play my masterpiece for you. And there's very much this idea of, like, someone is going to get killed, you know, but the way that I think it works in Kirby's narrative is, is that in fact, um, what ends up, what ends up happening is Stan scripts it on the page is doom is setting them all up to be killed. They're all going to go there and get wiped out. You know, doom's talking about sort of how much he's looking forward to destroying them all. And then in the last minute he doesn't. Whereas I feel, I kind of think that actually what's happening with Doom in that last issue is the FF have saved his village, and in his weird way, he is rewarding them, and he's going to set them free. Um, yeah, yeah, his, exactly. his, and that he, makes much more sense. We we should get through this issue and get because we're right now we're pretty much talking about the plot of the next issue. Yes, yeah, so sorry. Yes, uh, the plot of the victims really quickly is that, as Jeff said, the FF get their powers back. The hypnotic wears off just coincidentally as the unstoppable robots are coming. It does not wear off entirely. The FF get their powers back to a limited degree and leads the the people of the village in the fight back against the robots. But they do not really dominate the fight as you might expect superheroes to do so. 
this yes. really is an issue about about the FF as figureheads for a, a populist movement. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's important to note. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that that happens is even though Reed, because it's fucking Reed Richards, does save the day by finding the the equipment. It doesn't stop the fact that the people are fighting back and that they are standing with the people yes, throughout there's, the entire thing. Yeah, they're standing without the people. And the people themselves, which I do think is a nice touch, for the most part have a lot of suspicion and contempt of the, for the FF. But they eventually are won over by our heroes. I do want to say, because like you said, we need to pile through it. As the robots come for their final attack, uh, the FF and the villagers have holed up in a building. I love panel two of page 17 because again this is part of what makes me think that kirby is dealing very explicitly with some ideas things that he encountered in world war ii and europe because there is something where the way that kirby draws is it's a completely different set of line work for me i think on page 17 panel two where suddenly you've got some really really surprisingly delicate pencil work for this one set of chateaus that that mm-hmm. the ff and everyone have taken um are hiding in before things finally hit the shit like very different from the very strong you know heavy on the blacks heavy on the strong lines like mm-hmm. it it to me is 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 remarkable um because i'm remarkable. so they they defeat the robots Mm-hmm. Long story short, yes. um, and after they defeat the robots, Doom is so upset mm-hmm. that he decides that he's going to nuke the town. Mm-hmm. It's important to point out that in Lee's dialogue, he is so upset that the Fantastic Four is one, he decides to nuke the town, and then says, my subjects, I forgot, it's too late, the village is no more. Yes. We should so also Doom, say that Doom, we're using... Doom is not trying to get the, trying to kill the villagers. That's right. It's also worth saying... He doesn't kill the villagers. That's right. The chateau is, is saved by an invisible force field because the invisible woman has shown up having asked Nick Fury where the rest of the team was. Yep. Makes no sense, but let's just go with it. Also, but, never again will be commented on, Sue is defending against a nuclear bomb, Jeff. Yes. Well, we keep using the word nuke. Is it does It's true. It's, it seems to destroy like maybe... A block around them. Yeah. So it's it's whether or not. I mean, we're we're on a tight time crunch, people. So uh, leave your comments and let us know whether or not we're actually blowing things completely out of proportion. And there's not actually well, nuclear I, weaponry involved. Well, sure I don't think. Not, I mean, but... it's clearly not a nuclear weapon. But yeah. I want to say that, like, at some point in the dialogue, it is referred to as such. It could. I be. I think it is one of those. You know, of course, it's a nuke because that's how we thought nukes worked back then. Right. Exactly. But it's clearly not a nuclear bomb. It destroys a few blocks. Yeah. So now we move on to 87. Uh, the FF and Doctor Doom have their moment of truth at last with the power and the pride. Um, and Graham, since you are much better and speedier at recapping, and since we've already sort of heard my part of my alternate narrative, do you want to do you want to recap? Well, this is a. Uh, it start. The cover says uh, possibly the most offbeat ending of the year. And I think it actually might live up to that. That is uh, true. The FF, at the end of issue 86, yeah. pledge vengeance on Doom. Yeah. The FF at this point are actually five members because Sue is back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 
Reed, Sue, Johnny, Ben, and Crystal. And they are they're on the warpath. They start off the this issue with all their powers returned mm-hmm. and deciding to attack Doom's Castle. Yeah. Uh while this is going on, we see Hauptman, the uh, friendly neighborhood Nazi, and the painter who does he even have a name? I'm not I, sure. I don't does. think he does. He's not given a name at all. Uh, the painter, however, has grown a full head of hair. Yes, uh, since his first appearance. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, they are they are confronting each other about the fact that that Doom has has led them to this. Yes, uh, Hauptman is every inch the toady. Yes, uh, saying that there can be no escape from Doctor Doom, but I shall report to him. I shall tell him what you proposed. What the artist proposed was essentially let's both get out of there. Yeah. Like let let's leave. Let yeah. let's while all this is going on, let's escape. Yes. Um because the artist is it does not want to be there. Yeah. It it's it's fair to say. And actually it strikes me now, is the artist the guy we saw escaping in the issue eighty four? See, this is the and thing so, that drives me nuts. Half hair and then he lost hair? Yeah, I it's one of those things where I think that Kirby's going at breakneck speed. If you ask me, I would say yes. That's supposed to be the same guy all the way through, even though he looks differently. It is, in fact, unlikely that they are technically, because as it stands now, no. And again, there's that thing of he gained the, the, it, the artist is seen as bald the first time we see him painting Doom's portrait. And I think that's kind of important. It would not surprise me if Kirby mixes the two, him up with the guy escaping in the first issue and sort of retroactively merges them in his sort of breakneck pacing. But to me, what's important and in a way that doesn't really seem to pan out in the issue as scripted is, is that Hauptman and the artist are painted as utter and complete opposites. And that's pretty important as Hauptman walks off to confront uh, Dr. Doom uh, and tell him about the artist uh, and yet, I, I, this is where Doom introduces the idea of his hyper sound piano—a oh, piano yes. with which he can kill someone. It's it's the something truly special. Uh, the reception the Fantastic Four deserves. He explains, right. the Fantastic Four are approaching the castle when Crystal and Sue fall through a trapdoor. Mm-hmm. Reed and Johnny and Ben are trying to get them back, uh, only to come under attack from. Potentially Doombots, potentially soldiers dressed in Doombot outfits. We're still not quite sure. Who They're can figure out? Acting yeah. like people. Yes. They they don't manage to repel the Fantastic Four so much, but mm-hmm. they put up a fairly good fight. Yeah, all things considered. Ben manages to destroy the wooden door by blowing on it. Yes. Thing thing lungs, apparently a wonderful thing. While this is going on, however, Crystal and Sue appear within the castle, and in their attempt to escape open the door only to, as you've already said, walk in on Doom preparing a feast for them. Yes. Uh, festivities to start. Um, we have an even smaller uh, cutaway to the Mushroom House than we had in the previous issues, which basically have people being like, oh shit, that house is spooky, and thank God it's only three out of four panels on a page, and we are back to the FF kicking ass and tr- breaking their way into the castle. So for the rest of the issue, we cut between Reed, Johnny, and Ben mm-hmm. trying to get to Doom, while Doom is literally whining and dining and romancing Crystal and Sue. While Doom does this, however, he mm-hmm. is keeping track of Reed, Johnny, and Ben's progress on a monitor. Reed, Johnny, and Ben run into Houtman, 
yes. who has a flamethrower and mm-hmm. decides he's going to kill the Fantastic Four where they stand. Oh, no. Oh, he doesn't? No, no, no. What happens is they come into this oh, room true. with all the art. Exactly. Where he is confronting the artist, and he's going to kill the artist where he stands. Exactly. Exactly. And because the artist, the artist says... is not an artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You the are an agent of an S.H.I.E.L.D. Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. Because of course he is. Because of course he is. Exactly. Confronted by the, the Reed Johnny and Ben by this, he then starts to just use the flamethrower crazily and makes the mistake of saying, I'll cover this gallery with flame. None shall escape alive. That's right. This angers Doom so much that Doom kills him with the That's hypersonic right. piano. Mm-hmm. And then just tells the Fantastic Four to leave. That's right. That's the end of the issue. Yeah, which is very, it's very odd. To give you an idea of the pacing, readers mm-hmm. who are not reading along, Houtman's death happens on the last page of the issue. His confrontation, Houtman's confrontation with Reed, Johnny, and Ben is on page 19 of 20. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. very last minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a very odd uh, it's a very odd issue. It it prevent it presents uh, a different side of Doom than what we've seen already. The yes. idea that Doom is is a complicated man, <laughs> and uh, no, no one understands him but his woman. Sure, but it really is presenting that. It, it's trying to make the case that Doom is not your regular bad guy. Yes, that Doom has priorities and morals that are his own. Mm-hmm. And may not make sense to us, but that he really would rather kill his henchmen to save the art than allow his henchmen to kill his accursed enemies. Yes. You know, so you, so you actually get this. Because uh, before this, I think it's fair to say that Doom has been relatively cartoonish. Mm-hmm. You know, I will stop at nothing to to vanquish my foes. That's and right. He, he has that within his grasp, although admittedly he wouldn't be vanquishing his foes, but, but they, they would die, mm-hmm. and he stops it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you do get that extra element of Doom, but that is kind of at odds with the Doom we've seen in the previous three installments of the storyline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And again, this is that kind of thing of I feel that, that in trying to present one image of doom uh lee creates a a portrait of a character and then because he and kirby are out of sync you end up with this portrait which is also fascinating and compelling but ends up operating uh, kind of at odds with the man before who was perfectly you know willing to destroy a whole village in order to destroy the fantastic four in lee's uh, telling, or in my uh, my take, the idea that he's in a, in his attempt to to wipe out a threat, um, you know, is willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Here we see something very different from Doom, and I'm also convinced that what is supposed to really be happening here, as as far as Kirby's concerned with the narrative, is you have you have essentially the company man and the true artist, and the company man who is bald, uh, basically says, 
you know what? As Doom... someone who's bald, fuck you, Jeff Lester. No, no, no. Sorry, I just mean Stan Lee is also bald, as far as Kirby is concerned, which I think is is very important. I've used this shorthand before, and I know you never like it, but uh, as someone who barely has any hair on his head at all, Graham, that's not a beard, let me just say, I just think that my feeling is, is that Kirby is trying to say something about uh, his Dr. Doom... Vanity. Uh, about vanity, but also literally about art. I think he is, he honestly is like, you know what? The artist, when you fall down, uh, like doom is a pure, is kind of this pure villain sort of concept. But the fact is, is that you can't always predict, you know, that, that essentially the company man, as much as the company man kisses up to the comp to the guy in control, the guy in control actually respects the artist more. And I wish that that was true. <laughs> I wish that that was true for Kirby. And I don't know. Again, this is my this is my imaginary reading, so we don't know. In fact, it's very safe to assume that this is not what actually is going on. But to me, what ends up making a lot more sense is the idea that Doom. You think Doom is um, going to kill the FF? He is planning on killing someone all along, and we're supposed to think that it's going to end up being the artist who I don't know if he necessarily, if, if it's Lee's add on to the fact that he's a shield agent, you know, is supposed is, is in Kirby's plot as well. It definitely well, seems it, very it's strange. It's utterly superfluous. Yes, it is. It is superfluous. And it also, I mean, even as far as Lee's concerned, the artist drops out of the narrative, which I think is fascinating that there is this weird passive aggressive negation going on in this story. <laughs> Kirby kills the company man. Lee has the artist disappear entirely from the narrative. You know, well, he's there. Kirby kind of does too. Yeah, no, he, he definitely does. He definitely does. I, it, it's definitely, I don't think, I don't think that's a one-sided thing on, on Lee's part at all. I mean, the it's, the artist reappears in this issue, uh, or towards the end of this issue, I should say, because obviously he's he's in it earlier on when they have yes. the disagreement. Um, but he he's back for a, a panel. Oh, a and few he, panels. He's yeah, there, he's yeah. there at the uh, as the, as the MacGuffin, basically. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's the MacGuffin if he's if yeah if you buy into the description of of Lee's description of the script. But the fact is, yeah, Lee, who's normally pretty good at tracking. Plot points just says our little tableau has reached its conclusion. You and the females will get, be given safe conduct to the border. This is being said while like Reed, Sue, I mean, Reed, Johnny and Ben are in panel. So it's like Lee's covering the fact that them and Crystal are explicitly covered, but there is no mention of the artist, nor would it make any sense that Doom would let a shield agent go. You know, which again yeah. has been explicitly called out in the narrative. So, yeah. well, what's what's interesting to me is that you said that uh, you suggested that Doom was going to kill the artist, and I don't think so at all. I think this Lee is very clearly suggesting that Doom is going to kill the Fantastic Four. Yes, absolutely, and 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 I and I think that that is it's Lee's in there, and it's the way that Kirby is shaping this is. Shaping in the storytelling, as you point out, he's playing his little, um, you know, piano, his hyper sonic piano or whatever, with a monitor that is showing the FF breaking in as he does. So it's clear that they are 
it looks like the object of the piano's attention. So no, that's definitely baked in there. But I do think the idea that um, that one of those guys has to die and it ends up being Hauptmann is, I think, something that that Kirby might have been edging toward in the narrative in a way that Kirby that Lee is like, mm, I don't think so. But I could be wrong. It would be one of those things where. Uh, I wish if I had access to all the original art from this issue, we could see what Kirby was writing on the sides. And he's probably writing stuff like Jeff is full of crap. Don't listen to him. So, but I'm um, sure if you uh, read enough back issues of the Jack Kirby quarterly, it's, it's that's it. I kind of want, yeah, exactly. Go through all of those. I'm sure somebody breaks it down, but, um, but I am fascinated. These two issues, like this four issue thing of doom, you've got, the prisoner you've got world war Two. you've got the art above all i mean they're all it's all some amazing stuff with some gorgeous art and again some great dialogue by stan so it's all the more bewildering that in a way it doesn't come together the the ending of this is the most anticlimactic of all the ff stories and, and i think we've read Lee today clearly knew it mm-hmm. hence the cover blurb Yes. Yeah. He's he's like, engaging Lee, Lee in some... is clearly um mm-hmm. anxious about the way the story ends. That's right. And he's trying to subvert expectations with the blurb and the fucking cover. Yeah. Yeah, completely. That's basically like, you guys, it's not what you think. Yeah. Right. Which is true because I think a lot of people were expending expecting like, you know, an ending. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, I think not well, a stopping. But especially the way that the previous issue ended, which Mm -hmm. is literally the Fantastic Four looking at the reader and saying, now it's time for payback. That's right. That's right. You know? So you're you're pretty much promised the next issue is the showdown. Yeah. And it's it's just not. Even the the Fantastic Four members who face Doom Mm -hmm. literally have dinner with them Mm -hmm. as opposed to having a showdown. That's right. That's right. It, it, it's a very interesting subversion of of the narrative trope that you would expect. Yes. Because I think Kirby's saying art is eternal and it's worth protecting and and fuck what the company, you know, fuck what the company men try to do in order to curry favor with the company. Okay. Or not. Who knows? I, I love that I, long I, pause I, of just scrambling. I agree with you with part of that, but I think your your company men thing is more in your reading than on the page. Probably. I think that is, <laughs> I think, I think that's a given Graham. I really think that there, I don't know if there's ever been a single episode of the Baxter building where you haven't had to say that to me at least once. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like it, the art is eternal and art has a value beyond that, which shall we say narrow minded people give it. Mm-hmm. It's clearly Kirby's intent. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, art, art is so vital that even a beast like Doom recognizes it. That's right. And, and will protect it. Yes. It's, yeah. it's the lesson of the issue. Yeah. I think when you then go into then the company man, <laughs> I don't like, I'm not necessarily sure that there's anything there to support it beyond your like hyper contextual understanding of Kirby's relationship with Marvel at the time. 
Yes. Because there's yeah, definitely yeah. nothing to support it in the work. Agreed. Because the whole point is, Houtman isn't a company man. He even says it, that he believed in the Third Reich and then he found something else. Houtman mm-hmm. is an opportunist. Uh, yes. He's he's a, a craven coward and an opportunist. But he, he has no loyalty to the company. His loyalty is to himself. So if you're looking to place in story value, the it's it's not... Kirby is not saying art is more important than the company man. He's saying art is more important than personal gain. Uh, an excellent point. And and I think and I agree. Uh, but of course, I I think I'm I'm sure. Like I agree. That. However, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying I think I perhaps shorthand that badly. But by in terms of what I mean by company man. But yes, let's. I know we've got a hard stop that we already overshot. So let me let me concede the point to the ever reasonable, ever rational, and ever handsome uh, Mr. McMillan, and uh, then I'll coerce At least you into one of those. Is a lie. <laughs> But which one? Can you exactly. figure it out before the end of? One? Which one is it? We'll, we'll we'll get back to you on that. I'm going to see listeners mm-hmm. uh, next episode of Baxter Building, which for reasons that I'll get into in a second, it's going to be slightly later than normal. Uh, we'll be doing issues 88 through 94 and annual number seven. 88 through 94 and annual number seven. I Got do it. want to check over now that I said that Annual 7 might be a reprint. Oh, really? It is a reprint. Oh, okay. So we're not doing Annual 7. I mean, okay. you can read them if you want, but it's all reprints. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so we're doing 88 through 94, and that, oh. that, and that is it. Fabulous. Um, there's a reason that the next episode of Pax Building is going to be late. It's going to be late by a week. And the reason it's going to be late by a week is because Jeff Lester... The beautiful bearded man I'm talking to right now, <laughs> and myself, the non-bearded, non-beautiful man that is speaking these words that you're listening to, uh, we're both taking part in Secret Convergence and Infinite Podcasts. Ah, that's where you're going a, with this. In a massive crossover. That's uh, right. You may or may not have seen stuff uh, about this online. Uh, it was announced today in a piece on Comics Alliance, today as I record. Um in a piece on Comics Alliance. But New York Comic Con is going on at the same time, so it's perfectly possible that you're like, have you seen that they're doing... I have no idea what even has been announced in New York Comic Con. But I missed that. Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts is a crossover event, including ourselves and eight other comics podcasts, wherein we are guesting on each other's shows. Wait what? Uh, the Wait What episode of that will be airing in the slot that was going to be... That's right. You're so good on this, Graham. Yes. Baxter Building is going to be the week after that. That's right. Uh, Jeff, I am not on the Wait What episode. Why don't you tell everyone who is on the Wait What episode? Uh, 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 Oh, my goodness. Yes. Let me. So, yes. If you guys tune in next month, uh, November 16th, you will or should be or will be greeted with a very different Wait What as uh, our beloved Graham McMillan has been snatched away by mysterious forces to a different section of the vast, uh, strange area known as Battle Pod. Uh, and in his place will be three other guests. It will be myself talking to uh, the remarkable Paul O'Brien from House to Astonish, the amazing Gary Lactus from Silence, 
and the charming and extra knowledgeable Chico Leo from the Fan Brothers. It is the four of us in a 90-minute conversational free-for-all uh, about a topic that I will leave undisclosed until it gets a little bit closer to the time. But um, even though you will doubtlessly feel the lack of uh, Graham, I know that I certainly did, uh, you have a lot of newbies uh, talking about um, some very fun and entertaining comic stuff. I think people who listen to the Baxter building, if you also listen to wait, what it's, it's very much in that vein. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, but you will also be able to hear me on another podcast. We'll disclose a little closer to the actual release and Graham all over the goddamn place. So I'm on three other podcasts. Wow. Quite how that happened. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fairly big undertaking. Uh, yes. we are crossing over with a bunch of different shows. Do you remember them offhand? Oh God, there's so many of them. Uh, well, there is a uh, war rocket Ajax, Rachel and miles explain the X-Men journey into misery, uh, house to astonish, um, into it with L Collins, uh, silence, um, uh, gosh, I should know them. I should know Less them all. Live with Kid or Die. That's right. Rose. Yeah. Uh, Rocket Ajax. Is that it? I think that's it. I think, I th- I th- I think we've done all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Rachel Miley <laughs> Clinic. That's right. Nine comics podcasts, ladies and gentlemen, with guests from each other crossing over. It really is, uh, uh, if it comes off and it looks like, God help us, it actually might. I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty amazing little accomplishment. Uh, for people on Twitter, definitely check out uh, SCOI Podcasts for um, information and up-to-the-minute updates. Uh, I think there's also a Tumblr page that I have not mastered the, the identity of. Is it probably the same thing, .tumblr.com? Oh, the, the answer is probably... You know what the answer is? The answer is I'll put this in the show notes because I don't have that in front of me right now. There we go. That's exactly <laughs> the right thing. Organization. Organization, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, it's running. It starts the 29th of October and it runs all the way through to the 29th of November. Yeah. There's going to be nine different podcasts. Uh, for people who are wondering what other comics podcasts are out there, it's going to be a pretty good introduction to a bunch of them. Yeah. So hopefully you can find new favorites and hopefully some uh, new people might find us. Who knows? Otherwise, we will be back when with the next Wait What? Uh, the very next Wait What, because I jumped to uh, us, um, my understanding is... It's, it's, it's two weeks from now. Is two weeks from now. Yeah, look for look for us on I think October twenty sixth with uh, wait what episode one hundred and eighty seven. Uh, Graham, do you want to tell people where to find us, and then we can? Uh... We are on the internet, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. We run the internet. If by run, <laughs> you mean show up on. Uh, we're at waitwhatpodcast.com where you'll find show notes for this episode and every Wait What episode. There's also going to be written reviews uh, by myself, Mr. Jeffrey Lester, and Matthew Ma- Mr. Matthew Terrell. Um, also, I could be wrong, but there might be a round table with all three of us talking about some comics uh, at some point in the, on that website in the future. That's right. There is also the Wait What Tumblr. Waitwhatpod.tumblr.com There is the Wait What Twitter 
at Wait What Podcast. Jeff is on Twitter at Lazy Bastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D. There is my Twitter at Graham M at G R A E M E M. There is uh, the Stitchers. There is the iTunes. That's right. And we are a Patreon supported podcast. This in this thread of Wait What the Baxter Building exists purely because people were incredibly generous and supportive from Patreon. Uh, we do this because we can, thanks to Patreon. So thank you very much to everyone who has supported us and has given to that. It is amazingly appreciated. That's, uh, right. that's patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast. There are 111 people who support us and we are grateful to each and every one of them. They are awesome. And I think unless Graham has anything else to say, uh, we will see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter building. <laughs>